0: Again, welcome those that are watching online. Get your last cup of coffee, your last donut, whatever, and get plugged in with us here. But uh, Proverbs 24, if you've got your Bible, make your way there quickly. Proverbs 24, verse 3, speaks to us about something that I can virtually guarantee you that every person in this want, room wants. It's a good family. Proverbs 24, 3 says, it takes wisdom to have a good family, and it takes understanding To make it strong. Come on, how many can say that's what I want? A good family that's strong, that's healthy. Whether it's my marriage, my relationship with my kids, my grandkids, those that are at the Christmas and Thanksgiving table. I want those people that are a close part of my world. I want us to be strong. But my question is, where does the wisdom and understanding come from? And I'm going to suggest to you that the wisdom and understanding for a good family, a good home, a good marriage comes from the Bible. I'm sad to say our society has neglected the Bible, and I think that's why we're in such the mess that we're in today. But uh, we've been doing a series called Building Relationships That Last. And uh, we're learning how to build healthy relationships that last a lifetime, once again, by biblical principles. If you were here last week, you know we talked about forgiveness and talked about forgiveness as a reset button in relationships to release the offense, to turn it over to God and to get a fresh start. Well, today I'm going to talk about four biblical principles to help you have a, now listen, a happy, fulfilling, Christ-honoring marriage. Happy, fulfilling, Christ-honoring marriage. And if you're married today, how many married people are here today? Well, listen, your spouse is going to get something out of this one today. So just go ahead and punch him and say, You need to be listening now. Uh, if you're single in here today, chances are you're going to be married one day. And particularly if you're young, I want to encourage you to listen to what the Bible says because it is not what you see on TV. That is not real life. That is not God's intention. It's very different. If you happen to be here and perhaps you're divorced or a widow or widower, let me encourage you, don't let the devil slip any condemnation on your shoulder. How I many you know you've always already gone through the hard part and the hard thing and the difficulty of ask God's forgiveness? Come on, walk in the forgiveness that you have and the freedom that God has given you. Praise the Lord. And- Because who knows, you may get married again. And if you don't get married again, let me know we can all help some friend or family whose marriage is in trouble. So I think there's something for all of us today. Linnell's going to share the pulpit with me on the hard part, so uh, I think I'm going to be okay. Let's call it a happy marriage, part one. Next week, we'll do part two, and we'll talk about raising good kids. But before we get into these four principles, let me first talk about God's design for marriage, When we talk about God as the creator, we think about God created the heavens and the earth. God created the universe. God created the beauty of the flowers that are blooming now. I love to garden, and right now it's just, I mean, I mean flowers are vibrant everywhere, and, 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 and God created that. But God also created people, and how many know if he designed us the way that we are, he's got a plan for us and our marriage. Uh, Let's see what it is. A biblical design for marriage. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord said, It is not good that the man... This is Adam, the first one created. Again, God took some dirt and he... I don't know what he did. Spit on it. Whatever he did. But somehow he, he shaped it into a man. Breathed in him the breath of life. And then Adam, of course, named all the animals. But then God said this. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper... That's fit for him. Or, other translation says, I will make him a companion that is just right for him. And conversely, a companion that would be just right for her. So, this was God's intent. And when it says just right, uh, we're talking about emotional. Just right. We're talking about your physical relationship, your sexual relationship, your spiritual relationship, that we are just right for each other in every way. And that's the goal of every marriage to be able to find and become that person to have that kind of life. So obviously, first anesthesia takes place. Adam goes to sleep. God takes a rib out. And Adam wakes up and he's looking at this naked woman. So he named her. He said, Whoa, man woman See you're going to get it It's the only joke I had today So verse 23 the man said, <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about well never mind But verse 22 the, the the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and the man said she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man Notice it was a rib He didn't take her out of his foot so he could rule over her, nor did he take her out of his head so he could rule over her, but out of his side so that they could be joint partners in this journey of life. Um, I went on to say, and then he gives, this is like a prophecy because there were no children yet, there were were no, no married people, but God spoke this, what marriage is. A man, a biological man, shall leave his father and mother. It's the father and mother that produce a child. He shall hold fast to his wife, a biological female, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh implies the sexual intercourse for both pleasure and producing children, but that is God's design to the Bible. According to the Bible, marriage is designed by God between biological male, biological female. And God intended marriage to be a lifetime commitment that will bring us happiness, that will bring us fulfillment, and a secure environment to be able to raise children. Well, how many know our culture defines marriage differently? I mean, it just does. You watch TV, it is different. Laws that we've made, I'm not here to argue that for it against it. I'm simply to say this, we must decide if we're going to obey God's word or do something else. And for me, it's just that simple, whether it's an argument about marriage, an argument about abortion, you just take your pick in the popular subjects today. Now, am I going to act as if the Bible is true, or am I going to go my own way or going to go the way of the, of, of the culture? Well, I don't much you, but I've chosen the Bible. How about you? Come on, give the Lord a good, a good hand today. Now, let's get into four biblical principles that are going to help us in our marriage, uh, some of them, you're just going to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and some of them, you're going to do this to me because I'm going to say exactly opposite of what the culture says, or I'm going to say what the culture is will attack. Uh, uh, so, so, but what I want you to do, I want you to listen to the Bible and if the Bible says something that's very clear to us. How many know we want to respond to it? Because Jesus said, if you love me, what do you do? You will obey, obey his commandment. So the Bible is, according to scripture, it's a lamp uh, to guide our pathway. Uh, it's a light for our path. Uh, Jesus declared the word of God to be truth. So this is how we look at God's word as a source for the happiness and fulfillment that we long to have in a marriage relationship. Well, here's the first principle it's called commitment. Everybody say commitment. It's the glue that holds us together. Now, how many have ever super glued your finger together on accident? Yeah, everybody in here, it says don't do it. And somehow you just, you know, you're not going to get it on your finger, but you always do. Well, it takes a little while to get that thing off. And ultimately, you can do it, but I want you to think of the binding power here of commitment. When we make a commitment to do something. A definition, very simply, it's a vow or a pledge. And typically the marriage vow or or pledge is made in the presence of God and these witnesses. So when you get married in a Christian marriage ceremony in a church, it's a vow, it's a pledge that you make to God and that you make to your spouse. You're pledging to act in a certain way and you're obligating yourself to do certain, certain biblical things. For example, marriage vows. Part of what the marriage vows that I uh, uh, said to my wife, we, by the way, my sister took our vows, and we wrote our vows and in calligraphy, and they're posted, uh, they're posted uh, uh, in our, going in our bedroom. We got a little hallway there, and my wife tells me she won't cook dinner unless I read the vows every week, so <laughs> I'm just kidding, but they're there, and periodically we do stop and look because we made a promise not to just God, but a promise to one another. Now, this is very key, it was a, and part of it was as long as we both shall live, but a popular vow in culture today says as long as love will last. So it's a commitment versus a feeling. How many know feelings go up and feelings go down? I don't, the, uh, if we're honest, the best marriage that you've ever seen, each spouse has probably had an occasion where they wondered why, why, why did I marry this guy. You hadn't though, have you, Linnell? No, good. But most of us kind of have those up and down feelings. We don't feel the love, but the commitment helps us to keep loving in spite of what the person has done, come on, until we get to the other side. Typically love in our world today is because of what they do. And if that because ever changes then we make another, uh, we make a change as well. And uh, it's unreal, unrealistic to think we won't have adversity. We will, but a commitment will take you through. A commitment will take you through. If one of you are down, if one of you have made a mistake, if one of you have wandered, a consistent commitment to Christ and your spouse will, will keep you strong. Now let's, let's, let's think about the, uh, our world just a moment. How many have heard of no-fault divorce? Yeah, well, uh, I hope you never have to go through the pain of it, uh, but every, it started in California, I think in the 70s, but uh, it's in every state now, no-fault divorce, which basically means you can just go before a judge, and it's just a matter of papers to sign. Some states may have some more requirements to it, but there's something called a covenant marriage. How many are from Arkansas? Uh, Arkansans, wave your hand at me here, yeah. yeah. How many wish they lived in Arkansas? Come on now, less property taxes, come on, what well, I me mean, But anyway, why I bring up Arkansas, Arkansas is one of three states that has what's called a covenant marriage. Arizona and Louisiana. I wish Texas did and more states. But a covenant marriage basically is a legal kind of marriage, which before you get married, you agree to pre-marriage counseling. And then you also agree that you're not divorced for just any and every reason. Well, you say, well, that limits my options. What if I'm not happy? That's the intent here. <laughs> Come on now, <laughs> is to limit the options so that we will be more committed and more thoughtful going into it. You know, I, oh, I just saw him and I fell in love with him. It was love at first sight. <laughs> and we were married a month later. Stupid is as stupid does according to Faris Gump. <laughs> <laughs> you need if you're going you need to take some time here you know to make sure that this person is who they says they, who they say they are i had a shocker before my wife and i got married we both had breath mints in our mouth every time we saw each other and after we got married she didn't <laughs> i mean <laughs> Come on now, if you spent two hours getting ready for a date, come on, you are prime. Your car is prime. There's no ketchup on the seats. You've got money in your pocket. You're, you know what I mean? You, uh, it, it's going to... But real life is a little different. I highly encourage, if I could digress just a moment, before you marry, seek pre-marriage counseling. We do it in the church. It's tests given by uh, Christian professional counselors. We have counselors that will help you, help you make the right decision so you can have a happy, fulfilling life. But if you're in it (laughs) and it's just like hell on earth, there is hope. Listen to me, friend. God can turn what's unhappy today into something that brings you happiness tomorrow if we'll start applying biblical principles. Don't be afraid to get some help if you need some help. Come on, somebody, praise the Lord. It's the greatest gift you can give to your children is that mom and dad love each other their entire life. It's the most best thing you can do. Let me throw this out there too. People who choose to live together, cohabitation, Instead of getting married, they want to keep their options open, and the assumption is that they're going to be happier that way, but the uh, the research has proven that the opposite is true. Focus on the family, one of the most prestigious institutions on family life in America, did research, and what they found was cohabitation is correlated with greater likelihood of unhappiness and domestic violence. Women are more likely to be abused by a cohabiting boyfriend than a husband. And children are more likely to be abused by their mother's boyfriends than her husband. So what should you do today if you're in church today and you're living with somebody? Well, I'll tell you this. We'll love you right here. You, you don't have to change to come to church here. We'll love you right here. You know, how I many know God took me the way that I used to be. He took you the way you used to be, and he helped turn you into something that you could, what you are today. Listen, I, I don't care about your sexual orientation, your gender confusion, any of that stuff. You're welcome in this church. And it's our hope and it's our prayer that our lives will continually begin to conform more so to the, to the Scripture and God's way of living. But if I was living with someone today, what I would do is I would have a real serious conversation over the next couple days. And do you, we want to commit our lives to one another Do we want to follow in the path of marriage and make a commitment for life? And whether you do or whether you don't, I would separate and not live together. But if you're going to get married, listen, go through the counseling. Let's leave the past behind. Let's celebrate when you join together as husband and wife. If there's kids, let's bring them in. And let's start from where we are today having a better life today. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. All right, that was extra. Uh, Now, this next principle... Uh, I'm going to have to have some help from my wife on the next two. The wise one is going to help me here, so she's going to make her way to the stage. Um, but here, see, I just noticed somebody already folded their arms. That did not help me, brother. Don't, don't, don't. That's a, not a good signal. You know, you're supposed to smile and encourage the preacher here. Um, Paul told husbands to love who? To love their wife. How? How? Now, that's a mouthful. Let me say this. The Bible is not a how-to book on marriage. There's great marriage books that are out there, but the Bible is not a how-to book on marriage. In the New Testament, married and marriage is only mentioned 21 times, and most of it is not prescriptive. In other words, and Joseph was, you know, uh, engaged to be married to Mary. So it's just out there about the marriage arrangement. But uh, Paul wrote, uh, well, before I say that, let me say this. And this is arguably the most important thing I'm going to tell you all day today. And it's this. If we live by the Bible in general, we'll be a better Christian. And if we're a better Christian, we'll be a better marriage partner. Let me say it again. If we will live by the Bible in general, we will be a better Christian. And if we're a better Christian, we're going to have a better marriage. Come on, somebody give the Lord praise today. Now, let's look at Paul. Paul wrote the longest address in the New Testament. Depending on how you interpret it, it's 12 to 13 verses about marriage. And there's five things that he tells us in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is not a corrective book like Corinthians, but it's more like a doctrinal or a standard. You can build your marriage on these five godly priorities. And uh, the one I'm going to start with is, is the one that I think personally is the hardest one. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. Okay, now, husband, just a second. Let's just forget that you do you love your wife and you do anything. How many want to give up your life for somebody else? Not me. I am selfish. And the person wearing your shoes is selfish, too. Just a little extra added revelation there. But now think about what he's asking of a husband. Love your wife. And love is not the feeling. We're going to talk about the Greek words in a few moments. But love is not just the feeling. It includes it. Oh, she's beautiful. She's hot. He's so handsome. And we're buddies. And we, well, you can't turkey hunt together. But we we duck hunt together. And and, and we have fun together. It's that, but it's more. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. And for me to tell you about that, I'm going to turn this over to my wife. And honey, tell us, how does the husband love his wife? like Jesus loves us.
1: So I want to talk about a word that, I mean, we say we love hot dogs and we love baseball and we love our spouse. So I'm going to substitute a different word than love, and that's cherish. Let me show you what the definition of cherish is. To treat with affection. Tenderness to treasure, appreciate, to nurture, and protect. Husbands, cherish your wife. Because the word love, like Pastor John said, in the Greek means something different than love in our modern day culture. How does a husband cherish his wife? Well, let me first of all say, I meet women. Sex? Uh, this is a G-rated message today, and um, we are not addressing that here. That's for a marriage seminar. How does a husband express t- and cherish his wife? I was g- about to say before he interrupted. So if I take more time, it's his fault. No, um, I can tell if a woman's cherished or not by looking at her eyes, her countenance. I can tell how they're treated in their home by their spouses, by their husband. Cherish is the key word. So you need to learn, husbands, you need to learn your wife's love language. You need to understand how she experiences love, how she feels love. Don't just love her the way you like to receive love. Because if you do, then you're, you're kind of shooting at odd angles. Um, tender touch and embrace. And this is non-sexual tender touch and embrace. <laughs> Women need to be loved, to, have, to be cherished by a gentle touch, holding her hand, giving her a hug. Kissing her. We're not talking about wanting something from her, just expressing that you cherish her. Words of affirmation, not, oh, you're hot. There's times for that. You could do it. You're hot. (laughs) But words, you're beautiful. I love your heart. I'm proud of you. Uninterrupted time. Husbands, you need to give face-to-face time with your wife without phones, without TV, and without something in your hand to read. Because you're reading and she's talking and you're going, uh-huh. She does not feel the love there. She does not feel cherished. Face-to-face communication. And listen, it's all about listening, not about fixing your wife needs to know that she's heard and give her time and she'll probably figure out what she, how she needs to change or what needs to happen, what she needs to do, but she doesn't need you just going, okay, well, this is what you need to do. And, so, blah, blah, blah. and if you do this, this won't be a problem anymore. She needs to know she's listened to. Acts of service, washing her car, doing the dishes, putting your clothes away, giving the kids a bath, doing something that... Makes her feel cherished. Gifts. A spa gift card, husbands, will get you a long way. Now (laughs) sex. Flowers. Dinner out. Let me tell you a few ways my husband shows me that I'm cherished. At night, he walks around to my side of the bed, he gives me a hug and a kiss, and he prays for me. Makes me feel loved. (laughs) appreciate it, it makes me feel secure. Um, another way he shows me love, you know, he's a gardener and he grows lots of beautiful things and good things to eat too. But he picks flowers from his garden and he'll bring them in and there'll just be a surprise in a vase on my kitchen counter. He texts me often and tells me, I'm proud of you. Just out of nowhere, just, I, I get that text. It makes me feel appreciated. He washes and details my car when I've been out of town for a while. Come home to a nice, clean, detailed car. Now listen to this, ladies. He rubs my feet at night. Uh, you know, that is an act of service and an act of love and appreciation. and touch. Boy, it's sitting on several things there.
0: And because I want you to rub mine, too.
1: Well, and I do rub his after he rubs on.
0: Okay, we're we're moving on now. (laughs) The third biblical principle, uh, this is where the controversy won. Paul told wives to submit to their husbands and treat them with honor and respect. Now, remember, Paul's going to give us five things. The first, he said, husband, love your wife. Uh, He's going to say, submit to one another. He's going to say, wives, submit to your husband. He's going to talk about the husband as the head of the household. And then he's going to talk about the wife showing honor and respect. So let me, let me read this one to you. Because our culture does not understand this all the way to the extreme of a radical rejection of anyone that would dare say something like that. Uh, the Southern Baptists, uh, I applaud them a number of years ago. They had, a, in their annual conference, they listed their doctrinal beliefs. And one was that the wife should submit to her husband. This is at the peak of the feminist movement. And uh, I think it had some bad things to it. But I'm grateful that the role of women in our culture and society has been elevated. I mean, I'm grateful we don't live as cavemen and cave are you Are you with me today? But, boy, when they heard that, it was radical... Uh, That's, that, that just, you know, that's horse and buggy thinking. Well, now our culture has thrown women under the bus and the transgender movement trumps women. You're a women's woman swimmer. You're going to be competing against some guy out there that's bigger and taller and stronger. It's a confused world. But let me, let me see if I can help you sort it out today because how many know God would never tell us to do anything that was bad for us? And if we properly understand what God says it, it's going to be helpful to us, and that's what we want to try to do here uh, now, w- when you read the Bible, you always read in context now I mean when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapter headings or verse verses. it was just one long text you know for the conservation of papyrus or whatever the clay tablet it was written on and and uh, I'm suggesting that this part on marriage starts with verse twenty one It says this because he's been given half a dozen, you could just look, just general exhortations towards the Christian life. But then he says this in verse 21 Further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Remember the co equal thing, the rib? Submit to one another, yield your will to one another it's not just a woman submitting to a man, you know, or a strong-willed woman demanding her man do what she wants. There's a mutual submission where he starts with. But then he does directly say, wives, and now we're talking about order in the home. He says, wives, this means to submit to your husband as to the Lord. Now, that does not mean that your husband is to be treated like Jesus, but as to the Lord means you're doing this not because of him, but you're doing it sometimes in spite of him because the Lord has asked you. God's designed for the home. This idea of a man being the head of the home, we'll read about that. That is not some macho thing. To be the head of the home simply means that you are ultimately responsible for what goes on in your home. If your children are going crazy, don't just tell your wife to fix them. Come on now. I mean, if something's broken in the house, don't just tell your wife to call the plumber. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be the head of your, of your home. If you go to bed back to back at night or somebody's sleeping on the couch, you, sir, if you're going to be head of your home, need to get up and go in there and reconcile with your wife and ask for forgiveness for whatever you did that was wrong. So if I'm supposed to, because I'm supposed to love her as Christ loved the church. So it's a higher form of love. Uh, Let's see. The husband is the head of his wife. Again, that's for order in the home. My wife and I, we never make big decisions unless we're in total agreement. And if we're not in agreement, we pray about it and we table it. I do not. Have I ever asked you to submit to me? No. Say that louder. No. Okay. (laughs) Except just now. Um, (laughs) Let's see. So as the church submits to Christ, so your wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And here's another point. The wife must respect her husband. The Amplified Version says notice him, regard him, honor him, prefer him, praise him, love and admire him. And I'll tell you why, ladies. It's because he's got this little boy still inside of him that needs a cheerleader to do flip-flop or somersaults when he comes out on the football field. Men need a cheerleader. Men need to, someone to recognize their hard work to put food on the table when they've cut the grass. Have you ever noticed that your husband, when he does something, he expects you to notice it? Yeah. Oh. Uh. Honey, there's nobody that can cut the grass in town as good as you. Oh.
1: Our look is good when you cut the grass.
0: <laughs> See, somebody still thinks I'm really handsome. Now I'm lost again. Okay. Okay. What submission is not now I want to show you. Hey, how many have seen the movie father the bride? Yeah. It's a, it's a comedy father the bride part two. It is really funny. And, uh, it's about this guy's name's George and in the first one his his daughter's getting married and it's all a comedy and the second one is now the daughter's going to have a baby and George and his wife are going talking about maybe selling their house and lo and behold this mediterranean guy comes up to buy his house and that's how it starts but what i want you to notice the way the mediterranean guy treats his wife that is not submission And then the funny part, George will try to repeat it in his family, and it doesn't work any better. So take just a little peek peek here, and this is not what we're talking about.
1: George, I'd like you to meet Mr. and Mrs. Habib.
0: Hello, how do you do? Nice to meet you. This is my son, Matty, and his friend, Justin. We like houses very much. When you can move
1: out. Excuse me? The Habibs would like to buy the house, George. It's exactly what they've been looking for. It's when you can move. We need house a week from wedding day. My wife wants flour,
0: dishes in kitchen. You sell, we pay top dollar. House top dollar. <laughs>
1: dishes. For the dishes, for the house, we pay what you ask, no more. But we need the house a week from Wednesday, day or no deal. See, that's,
0: uh, that's 10 days from now. It's kind of quick. here 18 years, I don't know if we can get everything. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> Excuse me, please.
1: Mr.
0: Habib is willing to pay a generous bonus for whatever inconvenience moving too quickly may cause you, George. Dad, discuss this with Mom. I sold the house. Well, congratulations, Gramps. Where are you moving? Well, we don't know exactly for sure where yet, but uh, we're thinking of maybe the beach.
1: We don't know exactly for sure where yet, but George, we haven't even started looking. You sold the house? Dad, why is she crying? Well, wow. <laughs> I guess I just assumed we'd have a little more warning. But what do we have? We have at least 90 days before we have to move. Am I right, George?
0: Oh, believe me, Nina, you can jack up an escrow six months if you need to. Uh, George? The guy paid me $15,000 extra to be out of 10 days.
1: The guy paid you $15,000 extra to be out of the house in 10 days?
0: I hope you took it, George.
1: He did. And he threw in mom's favorite dishes just to close the deal. <laughs> George!
0: The guy, Clem! Okay, Makai Kalim is not in the New or Old Testament. (laughs) We actually looked it up and it's simply gibberish. But that is not what we're talking about. That is male chauvinism, come on, that has no place in the home where the husband is supposed to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Again, this idea is submitting means to yield our will to another And let me remind you, I started in verse 21 that calls us both to submit to one another, which affirms, is affirmed by 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, husbands, she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should. So he is not saying a woman is to submit to all men. He's saying her husband. A wife does not submit to her husband because he's smarter or stronger. There is no hint of superiority or inferiority in Paul's teaching. It is simply God's design for order in the home. How I many you know if you, don't have, if you don't have police men and women to provide some structure or order in our culture, it's going to go crazy. If you don't have stoplights when you're driving your cars, you're going to have accidents. So there needs to be something in life. That gives, brings order, especially in our home, which in what he's talking about, when the man is the head of the home, it means he's ultimately responsible. It does, mean, it does not mean that she's there to serve him, and he's always on the receiving end. Because remember, husbands love your wife how? As Christ, As Christ loved. loved the church, which is an unselfish attitude uh, and approach. Okay, Linnell, what does it mean to submit to your husband?
1: So wives... I'm a strong, independent woman, but I find great comfort and protection being a woman under submission. I travel the world, I go and and travel to many countries, but what I know is that I'm under the covering of my husband, the covering of our elders here at this church, and when I go into another culture, into a, a, another area, the missionaries and the pastors, I enjoy being under covering and under submission, because I know that's where God brings a blessing. Submission is making a choice every day that I'm going to trust God, that he will lead and direct my husband and I. Um, I'm trusting God. I'm not trusting in a man. I'm trusting God. And I submit because the Bible tells me to. The Bible says to love your enemies. The Bible tells us so many things that are prescriptive. And one of the things is wives submit to your husband. So I choose to submit because I want to be in obedience with God because that's where I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to be protected and God is going to take care of me. I submit because I'm putting my trust in God and there's protection and submission. And here's the best wives. When we submit then our husbands are ultimately responsible for the decisions made in our home and they will stand before God and give an account. Now that sounded bad, you didn't laugh. But it's the truth, it's the truth. So I choose to submit because I wanna honor God, because I trust God. And let me tell you, submission is an attitude of the heart. It's I don't know everything and I'm not always right. It's saying, okay God, we're in, a, we're in a disagreement. We don't under, I don't know what's going on and who's right here, but I'm going to choose to submit to you and, and submit to my husband. I'm going to choose to trust you that you're going to make it clear what needs to be done. And like I said, we've, we've had this for 40 years to where we don't make a decision in the heat of the moment. If we're not in agreement, we pray about it. But in the end, I check my attitude. I check my heart, women. And I say, okay, God, if this is the way we're to go, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to submit. And if this is what's supposed to happen, then you're going to take care of us. You're going to protect us. Because you can change my mind, you can change his, but also you can take care of me, even if a good decision's not made in that moment. God will take care of you, women, when you submit.
0: Well, are there limits to submission?
1: Absolutely. Oh, no, wait. Not to submission, but to obedience. What am I saying? The Bible never says to a wife, obey your husband. It says children obey your parents, but it doesn't say wives obey your husbands. Submission is an attitude that should always be there. But obedience, if it's immoral, if it's unscriptural, if it's illegal, if it's against your conscience, wives, we don't have to obey but we have to submit. What does that mean? We got to have a good attitude. We got to say, you know, honey, I love you and I choose to submit to you. But in this, I can't participate because it goes against what I believe is right. So obedience is conditional, but submission should always be given because it's an attitude.
0: Okay, well, what if the husband's not a Christian or uh, is living, you know, not living the Christian life? Does a wife still need to have a submissive attitude?
1: According to the Bible, yes. 1 Peter 3, 1 says, In the same way you wives must submit to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe God's word, they're not a Christian, or they're not acting like one, your conduct will win them over to believe. It will not be necessary for you to say a word because they will see how pure and reverent your conduct is. So wives, even if your husband is not a Christian, I don't choose to submit to John because he's a pastor. I don't choose to submit to him because he is a good Christian or because he is always kind and supportive or because he's always right. Although most of the time he's pretty perfect. I choose to submit to him because the Bible tells me to. And my attitude is what would win over an unbelieving husband. My attitude, my, my not tearing them down with my words. Wives, our words can destroy our husbands, destroy their confidence, destroy who they are. We have got to have a kind word, a submissive attitude and heart, and then trust God to take care of us Because it's not our husbands that provide for us, it's it's God.
0: Let me add one word here. I don't believe a woman should ever stay in a home where there's violence. We call it domestic violence, but you're not a punching bag, and that's not biblical submission. You're a child of God that deserves to be treated with dignity and respect and love. And if there's violence in your home done to you or your children, you need to get out. That doesn't mean you need to divorce right away. He needs some time to repent, you know, and needs some help. But you don't have to stay in an abusive situation, okay, because you're trying to be submissive. I'll I'll ask you one more question. What should a husband do if a wife is not submissive?
1: Uh, Malik Kaleem is not going to get your way. (laughs) You can't demand submission. Also, wives, you can't demand that your husbands love you. It's a choice we make, a choice And so, husbands, if your wife is not choosing to submit, the only person you can control is yourself. What does that mean? You got to focus on what God's telling you to do, to love her, to pray for her, to be kind to her, to have a gentle heart towards her. You focus on that and then let God work on your wife's heart and her attitude. And women are responders, we will respond. If there is love and, and, and cherish, if we're being cherished, we tend to respond and open up like a flower and want to, in turn, be who God wants us to be and to be the wife that God wants us to be. And so, husbands, focus on yourself. Trust God and pray for your wife that God will work on her.
0: You did good. I wasn't touching that with a 10-foot pole. Give her a big hand. Hey, uh, w- weren't we going to talk about sex, though? Malik Kleem. Malik Kaleem to you, too. All right, let me wrap it up here. The fourth principle, love is more than words. Love is an action. What does love mean if you are in the backseat of a car and the windows are fogged up? Love means I want to have sex with you. What does love mean when uh, I love you, rather? I love you means I want to have sex with you. Uh, How about if you had gotten cancer somewhere on your face and the surgery horribly disfigured your body? When they say, I love you, it means I'm committed to you no matter what. It means I love you anyways. It means my love is unconditional. Uh, And this is, there's different types. Well, in the Greek language, there were three words for love. The first was eros. We get the English word erotic. Uh, it's not used in the New Testament. But isn't it odd that, that the one word that's not used, though the Bible is very affirming of sex between a husband and a wife, uh, it's, the, it's the first thing that comes up in relationships today. I mean, relationships are based on how good somebody looks, you know, how much money they have, what kind of car they drive, and it's all external. If you watch a 30-minute modern-day sitcom, and the first 10 minutes they're getting warmed up about each other, the second 10 minutes they hit the sack, and the third 10 minutes he's looking for the girl to be on the next show with him. I mean, that's just the world, and that's why, listen, Siri will tell you the average American or the marriage in America lasts 8.2 years rather than a lifetime, because we built on the wrong foundation. Let me tell you a second Greek word. It's the word phileo. Now, it is a positive word, it, it, it has the emotions, it has the feelings. Uh, if, you can, if you can look back to, uh, I don't know, I'm thinking about when my daughters got married, it was kind of a hard thing for dad, but I watched those little girls stare longingly at those husbands' faces, husband-to-be, and they were on cloud nine, and they were walking down the aisle, and everybody was standing for the bride. I mean, there was emotion, there was feeling, and that's, a part, that's phileo. Well, phileo is not just reserved for marriage. Phileo is a friendship term. But how many know it can often be conditional? That whatever your friendship was based on, if it goes out of whack, how many know friendships break up over phileo love? But agape love is the third kind of love in the Bible. It's the kind of love that God has for us. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. This is a non-conditional love. I love you if you're good. I love you if you're bad. I may not like you if you're bad, but I still love you if you're bad. I love you anyways. It goes back to this idea of commitment. Uh, Agape has to do, love has to do with our choices and our actions, whereas phileo love has to do with our feelings and our emotions. And feelings and emotions will do this in any marriage with with both people. But the agape love is the commitment love. It is the unconditional love of God that opened his heart to us on the cross. Come on. 2,000 years ago, God loved us, and he wants us to emulate the pattern. Give the Lord a good hand today. He is worthy of our praise. Well, honey, you only lost a dozen people when you were talking, so that's, that's pretty good. I thought it would be more. That's a tough subject. Yeah, it is, because we've all been abused in some way. And I don't mean the domestic violence abuse, but hurt feelings. It's easy to say, you know, I can do this stuff for a couple days, but sometimes it's a couple weeks or a couple years. It's tough That's why God has brought in this situation, and we do these things as to the Lord, not just as to them. All right, here's how we're going to close. If you're with your husband or wife, I want you to hold hands, both hands, not just one. And we're going to look in each other's eye in just a second. And if you're engaged, you can go ahead and do the same thing too. If you're not, you can hold your own hand, okay? But but hold your spouse's hand, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 13 what love is and what i'm reading to you is the agape love that god has for us and i want you to just think about when you hear these words this is how i want to treat you because this is how uh, the way i want to be treated here's what it says first corinthians 13 4 and if you're at home on the couch join us take hands first corinthians 13 4 love is patient and kind Now, don't look at the screen. Look at each other now. Come on. (laughs) Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. Here's a big one. Love is not rude. Maybe the biggest one. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. That's the forgiveness button. And here's the conclusion, verse 7. Love never gives up. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. One translation says, love never fails. You can go ahead and give her a kiss there if you like on that one.